Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are treated to the inside story of Libsyn's acquisition of AdvertiseCast. But before we get there, as you'll hear at the end of today's episode, one of the guests mentioned a trophy he bought to commemorate the sale of the business. And he was gracious enough to send us a picture of that trophy, and I have linked it in the show notes section, which I hope you will enjoy over at builttosell.com. Also, a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. And big shout out to Eddie Soto, who left a wonderful review over at Apple Podcasts. It reads, Built to Sell really schools you. Jody Cook's way of training her team to write a proposal in order for her to step back is something that should be done for all business in different departments. Training for patterns is challenging, but efficient. Thank you so much, Eddie, for the wonderful review. If you want to leave a review just like Eddie to help support the show, again, you can head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have the opportunity to not only leave a rating, but also a review. And I will share the link to how to do that again over in the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you about today's guests, Trevor Smithlin and Dave Hanley, who were the co-founders of AdvertiseCast. It's a marketplace that connects podcasters with advertisers. Now, during today's episode, I want you to look out for the strategy they use to retain top talent. Also, how they were able to ensure that their business could thrive without them. The unconventional sales strategy implemented to establish trust with a prospect and the crafty negotiation tactic they use to increase their offer. Here to share with you the full story is Trevor Smithlin and Dave Hanley. Enjoy. Trevor. Dave, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, John. This is going to be fun because it's rare that I get the opportunity to quiz co-founders. So usually I get one side of the story, but now you guys can go at it head to head and give me the, the honest truth, which is perfect. And I'm looking forward to it. Advertise cast for folks who aren't in the podcasting world. Explain in layman's terms what Advertise cast does. Trevor, do you want to start with a little bit of like the, the backstory and kind of how you Kind of got it, got this yeah. whole thing started, and where the where you saw the need, and then we can kind of go, kind of start from there. Let's do it. I like it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my background, I've you know part of my you know experience I've had in the past, like I was kind of like an internet marketing person, and uh, you know, I was looking at actually advertising some podcasts from my other company that I own and manage, and you know, I kept finding that you always had to like talk to a salesperson to kind of go through the process, and I'm more of a self serve guy, just want to kind of do things myself, so I'm like. You know, why can't it just be a simple online platform that connects, you know, the podcaster with the advertiser? You know, I can kind of see the shows. I can see how much they want to, you know, charge for their 30 or 60 second spot. And then I kind of just go through a system that, that was built, you know, that would kind of manage the order, you know, from start to finish. So honestly, it was a pain point that I personally had early on. You know, like, why shouldn't, I think something like this could definitely exist. And, you know, all the publishers seem sharp enough, the podcasters, where they could kind of self-manage things themselves through a, you know, a self-publishing system that we kind of built. So that was the inception idea. So I kind of rolled out like a concept version of this with uh, my developer back in, guys, like 2016, I think we first launched, uh, you know, the first marketplace. And that's exactly it. We launched the marketplace. You know, we, we asked a bunch of podcasters, hey, 
uh, you know, add your show to our marketplace. Um, you know, then we're going to get you in front of some advertisers. And all you got to do is, you know, create a listing that includes, you know, talking about, you know, what's your show name, uh, how many downloads do you get per episode, you know, what genre are you in, and a few other things. So then, you know, after we kind of did that, we had a, it just, it just took off right from the get-go. I'm going to say I had 200 shows signed up within the first couple of days. And then, you know, by two months, like we're, I mean, three months, I think we're almost over a thousand. So it was certainly a need that was wanted out there. And it was cool to, you know, see that much traction happen early on. I see Johnny. Yeah. Whenever we talk about a marketplace, there's always two sides, right? Like effectively marketplaces are powerful. They've got a network effect, but it's like, how do you get both sides to the table at the same time? Um, I'm really yes. curious to how you got the first 200 shows to sign up. <laughs> like, was this manually yeah. reaching out to people on LinkedIn or? Yeah, there's a, there's some manual process, but, uh, honestly, one of my hacks was there's a podcast channel in Reddit. There's a subreddit for podcasts and I just went there and there's, you know, that's where all the podcasts were kind of congregated. And I started asking the question like, Hey, uh, I'm Trev. I'm looking at building this new software solution. Would you guys be interested? And many of them said, Yes, we would. You know, it's absolutely needed in our space. I'm like, perfect. You know, I'm like, I'll report back in a couple of months when I have a prototype ready. So that was a good uh, marketing channel for us. And then, you know, a little bit of a hack is you can just, you can look up RSS feeds and find emails uh, that goes directly to the publisher and the podcaster, which is being taken away, I think, coming up soon. So you, you can't do that much longer. But I used to use that all the time too. So I had a tool that I could extrapolate the email out of those RSS feeds and then, you know, email the podcast saying, hey, I see your independent show. Um, maybe you need some help, you know, getting sponsors, advertisers, check out this new platform we built. So that kind of worked really well too. So a lot of, like you said, it's a lot of manual lift. You know, and Dave, how did you come into the fold? Yeah, so, so John, it's actually uh, goes along well with your last question. So Trevor started it with Scott, who's the, the developer. They had a ton of shows looking to get advertisers. And what happened next was, you know, some advertisers started to come in. They'd come in the door, they'd kind of kick the tires. And then for all intents and purposes, they would just disappear. And Trevor's like, hey, you know, this is, this is really working on the one side. We have the supply, but now we need the demand. Um, and essentially, like to make a long story short, um, I spent most of my career in something totally different, um, started a few uh, enterprise software companies in the insurance industry of all things. Um, and then I got kind of tired of that business and had an exit in 2016, took some time off. And I was thinking, what am I going to do next? I really don't want to do anything in, in insurance anymore. I was just exhausted with the whole, the whole thing. And then one night, literally... I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, love podcasts, hearing more ads, you know, maybe there's something there for this kind of concept of like a, you know, of a marketplace. And then, so I got up in the morning, I Google it and I go, Hey, this already exists. This, this company's doing it. And so literally just cold emailed into, you know, the hello address, this guy named Trevor spelled funny without an, you know, T-R-E-V-R emailed me back. And him and I started having a chat and I said, look, my background is, you know, kind of starting growing businesses um, as well as really focusing on sales. And then the more we chatted, the more it kind of became obvious to me is that you got the supply, the advertisers are coming to the doorstep, but they really needed to be educated in terms of, hey, here's what you need to know. Here's the number of spots you should buy. Here's how this is priced. Here's the ad copy and what you need to put together. Um, and really that was kind of what I brought to the table in terms of taking this prototype, essentially system, and then really getting it to take off and, and kind of bring in the demand side of it. 
Um, and so with we, Trevor and I had very, you know, different but complementary skills and, and it just, uh, it just worked out really well. What was your reaction, Trevor, yeah, to get this cold email? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the timing job was was impeccable. I mean, yeah, I've been trying this for about six months on our own through this truly self-serve on both sides, right? Podcast aside, it's working great. People are signing up their and their shows. But, the you know, the advertiser side, I did have a few that go through the process. But there's like Dave said, there's lots of nuances still that goes along with podcast advertising. Our system does streamline most of it. But still, you truly need a professional salesperson to kind of, you know, really walk you through the process. And, you know, Dave hit me up. You know, I looked him up on LinkedIn and... I'm like, God, this guy, I think he's the real deal. Cause I was very, you know, sensitive to the person I was gonna put in this role. And I wanted, you know, really a stud. And uh so I was I was pretty careful in trying to vet out Dave. I mean, I was calling his his ex-business partners, you know, and shit that Dave still honestly can't believe I did, but I I truly wanted to, you know, find the right person. And everybody said, Dave's the best. Like you're gonna, you're gonna kill it with Dave. So I'm like, fantastic. And so then Dave and I worked out some kind of agreement and uh really he didn't need much lift from me. He's like, I was going to work behind the scenes. I'm going to do my, you know, my uh, sales magic and you just keep doing what you're doing. And I'll report back and we'll see how things go. And, you know, it's kind of like a casual relationship, but uh, it's just one of these things that it was, it was honestly, John meant to be like, we're still like, I think almost best friends to this day and good friends. And it's just weird. how maybe serendipity mm-hmm. hits us at the right time. Right. Yeah. That's and what wild. We, what, I was going to say, John, what we did is we kind of started working together. I think it was like June of 2017. I said, hey, Trevor, here's what I think I can do. But like, I know, you know, you, anybody can promise anything. So I said, look, here's what I think I can do. Um, if let's work together for six months, try this out. Um, and if it works, here's what I propose, you know, in terms of like our partnership. Um, and we'll we'll deal with it then. If it doesn't work, okay, you know, no problem, no harm, no foul. And and really, after that, it just kind of took off. And um, you were in a position just, to make you were in a position to make that offer, Dave, because you'd made some money through the sale of your company, so you weren't looking to put food on the table. Correct. You, yeah. you could sort of you could make that offer. Um, a couple of questions for Trevor. Uh, you mentioned Scott, the developer, helped you build the first sort of iteration. What did you do in the way of of ensuring you protected the IP of the first iteration of the platform. Was it a handshake deal? Did you actually get Trevor or Scott to release the, you know, the, the code to you? Like, how did you guys stick handle that? How did you handle that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Scott was, uh, he, he worked for my other company for like five to I don't know, maybe it was 10 years at that point. So we've had this long lasting relationship, you know, up to this point. And, uh, he actually wasn't the very, very first dev. I hired, I outsourced it to like a, like a, you know, like a WeWork or you know, one of those uh, marketplaces. Exactly. And uh, so I, just, I had a couple of contractors that way to help me get the very, very first iteration, which maybe some people don't even know. And then when I saw this thing was going to get serious traction, I got Scott involved because Scott's just brilliant at what he does. And I knew it was going to take off. So I took Scott, kind of borrowed him from my other company to put time into this new company. And we brought him in. And uh, so really, I just had, a, it's just, we just, I've been trustworthy of him, you know, ever since, you know, our first company. So I really didn't, you know, see any challenges okay. like that. Okay. Uh, and, and, it, and, and did you, but to, to be clear, and again, the reason I'm asking is a lot of times these deals where there's software involved hit road bumps towards the end because somebody looks back to the original code and says, well, who owns this? And, and if there weren't sort of airtight, mm-hmm agreements that can get sticky. So that's why. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, John, I mean, um, thinking about, you know, when we went through ultimately our transaction, like some of the things that 
you should have in place for you know all of your employees. And frankly, I sh- I know better, but you know how things are. You start up, you get going, you move quickly, and you just go ah, you know we don't need to worry about that. And all of a sudden, one day somebody comes knocking. Like a hundred percent, you know, assignment of IP should be something that every employee should sign, not just developers. Every single person that comes in the door for any company, and it's so simple. Um, and it's something you don't have to go back to them, you know, right before you're about to sign a sign a deal to, you know, try to convince them that, oh, it's not a big deal. Just sign this piece of paper. <laughs> Why are you so keen on me signing this piece exactly. of paper all of a sudden? Exactly. So how did you go? Go ahead. Oh, real quick, John, we had to not compete for Scott too with the other company. So, you know, that was in place. You know, I don't know if it would work for this new company, but uh, just a little background there too. Like I did a lot of that the uh, technical work behind it too. Like all the UI, UX, and like design was really my baby. So then Scott was truly just a coder, not to be little that, cause that's a monumental task, I get that. So really it was like my vision and my understanding like how everything is gonna work in the workflow. Like I'm still anal too, like I'll tell you the button size, the color, the font, like I'm very critical that way. So Scott was truly just a builder. So I think, you know, he came on, he thought this idea was a hell bent idea. Like, I don't know what you're doing, this doesn't make any sense to me, but if, if you're so gun hole, I'll, I'll do it, you know? So I, I pay him, obviously, you know, salary and, to do it. And so how did you, and again, I, I may be getting into areas that you, you can't answer, and I totally appreciate that if, if you can't. But Dave, what was your proposal for divvying up the equity? Because I don't imagine you come cheap and, and probably you wanted some equity, but I'm trying to figure out how you how you all kind of decided to divvy up the equity. Who put in cash? Who put in sweat sweat equity? Like, what what were the economics there? Maybe yeah. I mean, address that. really, I'm really at that point from my perspective. Like, Trevor had already invested time and effort into starting it, coming up with the concept, you know, building out the platform. There's obviously something there. Um, I, I don't know what the 100% exact you know agreement was, but basically what I said is, hey, I'm going to get sales off the ground. And here's what I'm trying to do. I literally am going to hire somebody on my own dime that's going to help me go out, like kind of do prospecting um, within that kind of trial period. And basically, I, you know, we kind of came to an agreement saying, hey, here's how we're going to split the pie if this thing actually works. Um, and that's kind of what we came up with and both agreed. I think it's, and it's always important to do that up front when it's like, okay, this isn't really worth a lot. So let's figure out how we're going to split this up now as opposed to, figuring it out down the road. And that was something that I had kind of learned from, you know, my previous experience. So I said, Hey, before we get deep into this, Trevor, let's figure this out. And then later on, we're both going to be happy with, you know, the way it works, if it actually works. Yeah. So did Trevor have, and again, I'm I'm curious about this. If it's sensitive, please just tell me to move on. But (laughs) I'm, I'm curious about the dynamic between partners, because when things are 50, 50, it's kind of obvious, like everybody has an equal say, and you kind of have to cage match it out for big decisions. When there's a slight imbalance, 55, 45, 60, 40, whatever, mm-hmm. there's always a weird dynamic that like, yeah. yeah, we're partners, but at the end of the day, I've got the trump card and I can always play it. Yeah. I mean, how did you guys deal with that? I think, again, I have to look back at our partnership agreement, but again, from my experience, I kind of brought a few things to the table saying, hey, Trevor, like, yeah, so Trevor had the majority, right? Um, and it was like, Hey, you're you're the majority. Ultimately, like from where I sat, it's like he can do whatever he wants, you know. But what we did put in place essentially was kind of a shotgun to say, if at one point Dave wants to sell the company or buy the company, here's a predefined multiple. Trevor wants the same thing. Here's a predefined multiple because I know that 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 can cause some issues. 
So we kind of tried to think forward and say, what are the kind of some of the things we could run into and put some stuff in place like that early on? That's helpful. Did you predetermine what that multiple would be? Yeah. What did you? What I don't remember. What, I don't remember what it was, but <laughs> Trevor, do you remember? It? I don't either. I'm not quite sure. And I know too, John. We we got the opportunity each one of us to buy out those shares before it did go, you know, to open public investors, whoever you want to. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting that you both don't remember what the defined multiple was. That's <laughs> a testament that. It's a pretty we haven't, had to pull out, yeah. we haven't had to pull out the contract since we signed it, except yeah. to give it over yeah. to the uh, the buyers of the company, I guess. Yeah. But you're, but you're right, John. There's a lot of trust mm. here, right? I mean, you come in like that where Dave, you know, I mean, you know, he was the minority partner here, but he he had mm. plenty, right? It's a lot more than 10. We won't see what the number is. So, so you know, he, having an ex like this, of course, he came out, you know, in a really great way. But I'll say this too, like, he got a kick or two, or he said, if I meet X sales goal within like six months or a year, whatever it was, you know, would you, you know, give me another yeah, X percent? I, I said, oh, if you hit that, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it down, you know, personally deliver <laughs> to you, you know? So he, so he hit that goal and yeah, I kept my word and I gave it to him. And he was actually, I think, kind of shocked, you know? And so, but uh, like I said, I'm a man of my word. So we worked that out. So now he was much more majority or more, uh, more shit. Yeah, and right? I think, so, John, part of it is like we had a bunch of conversations. I think we kind of just both trusted each other, right? <laughs> I, know, I don't, I don't yeah. think either one of us was like, yeah. oh, I don't know about this guy, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 You got to have that too. I think that's so important. You know, Dave, you know, Dave back then, like, he never once had a look at the bank account. You know, he was just super trustworthy. I never had a partner that had so much trust in somebody like me. You know, so it was really, it was nice. It was very comforting. I was showing like, you know, bank seems I don't care. You handle that. You know, I'm just going to be head down working in sales. So Dave was super refreshing that way. And there's never like any like conflict or turmoil where I could see, you know, 50, 50 people really butting heads mm -hmm. and things like that. So, so let's talk about the evolution of the business. So I get the gen one was fairly basic. You go to the, the, uh, the Reddit, list and get a bunch of folks <laughs> on. Dave, you hustle to get advertisers and you're starting to kind of get this marketplace working both sides, supply and demand to use your term, Dave, uh, to meet in the middle. As you think back on the trajectory of the business over that, whatever it was, six or seven years, do you look back at, a, at a, an inflection point or a decision that you made that really in retrospect was critical to building its value? Um, I mean, when you think about, so just, well, I can tell you the progression. So basically when we first started working together is that six month trial period, I think prior to that, Trevor, you made a, might've run, I don't know, five, $10,000 through the platform. Right. Um, so next six months, just focusing on sales, you know, getting out there, I think for the next six months, it was about 350,000 give or take. So nice little improvement. Um, then 2018, we actually like put a stamp on it, registered the company. So this was kind of running, you know, as like a side entity kind of thing up until that point. Um, and then 2018, I think we did, you know, we went from that 350 grand to probably, I think it was around three and a half million for the next year. Wow. 10 um, Amazing. The year, the year after that, I think it was around 8 million. Uh, that was 2019. Uh, 2020, we were probably looking to double again. Um, of course, things changed a little bit in March, 2020, when COVID hit and basically advertisers freaked out, canceled half their campaigns. And Trevor and I are like, uh Oh, are we going to still have a company soon? Like this doesn't look good. We've never been through a, uh, a Trevor and I, neither of us had any 
advertising or media experience before getting into this. So like people were talking about like, oh, it's just one of those like, you know, um, you know, the media cycles or this and that. like we had no idea. So we're like, is this going to completely dry up and we're going to be out of business? Um, so that year we ended up doing, I think it was like 12 something million. Um, and then um, that's kind of how the business went. I think it was just like the way we grow the business, the way we grew the business was basically you bring in a couple people. You put the right structures in place. You get people, you know, trained up on everything and you let them do their things. We hired people that were smarter than we are. We hired people with actual media and advertising sales experience, um, learn from them. And then we like to run profitable companies, both of us. That's our history. We've never raised any outside capital. And so literally we push it right to the edge when people are like, hey, guys, like I can't, I can't do this anymore. I need help bring somebody else in and just continue to kind of ramp that up. So all, you know, all throughout that growth, we were profitable. The business was throwing off a good, you know, good amount of cash. Um, and it was just, you know, kind of doing things scrappy, doing things, um, you know, um, smart. And that's kind of how we grew. I want to get into uh, the management of people in a moment. Before I do that though, Trevor, what was the economic model? So, when Dave talks about you know billing twelve million, so that's twelve million dollars of advertising placed on uh, podcasts. You presumably would take a cut of the twelve million. What was your cut? Yeah, so we do a rev share model, which is very common in our industry, and uh, it's the same as pretty much everybody else. It's seventy thirty. So the publisher keeps seventy, and the house us we keep thirty. Got it. And so I think John. Part of what was funny is that when we came, again, without any media experience, we came in and the first couple of people we would talk to, they're like, well, I don't know, a lot of these like, you know, kind of agency style or marketplace style, whatever you want to call it, that are kind of like facilitating these campaigns, you know, the typical media companies are doing like 15%. We're like, no, we don't care. That doesn't sound good to us. So we're going to do 30. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, well, that's we nice. had a fresh perspective. We didn't care about what people were doing already. And radio or TV or anything like that. It's like, now we'd rather just do 30. <laughs> and we started at 80, 20, cause I wanted to kind of undercut the competition, but I soon found there wasn't enough meat in the bone there. Mm -hmm. We needed more margin to kind of pay the bills. So we went to 70, 30 and, and nobody scoffed at that. You know, we were, we were good to go. So that, that was a Got good it. feeling. That's, that's helpful. So on the 12 million advertising place, your gross profit before paying employees and so forth would, would be around 4 million if I'm getting that, that right, from which yeah. you would pay employees. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you really struck a chord with me, Dave, when you said we'd never come from media advertising, we'd never done media buying. And so we were, you know, flying blind a little bit to, to paraphrase. I think a lot of our listeners would resonate with that feeling of discomfort you get when you're managing someone doing a job you've never done. The opposite, mm -hmm. of course, is very easy, right? When you've done the job, you know exactly how long it should take. You know when someone's putting their feet up. You know when someone's not doing a good enough job or doing is being lazy. That's easy. Mm -hmm. But when you're managing someone performing a task that you've never personally done, for a lot of us, that feels really uncomfortable, not knowing how far to push people and so forth. What's the mm -hmm. secret of managing somebody well, doing something you've never I done? I think, so there's a guy who 
was involved with the first two companies that I was, was involved with kind of starting up and growing. And, and he was a very pragmatic business person, amazing entrepreneur, actually based in Toronto, there where, where you are. And um, he taught me a very, a very uh, important phrase that not a lot of people like to say is, I don't know. Right. So you, we'd be in we'd be in sales meetings, demos, selling these multi-million dollar software packages. And somebody goes, hey, Dave, Terry, how about this? And we go, I don't know. You know, we'll ask. We'll find out for you. And immediately, as soon as you do that, the trust that you build with that person is unbelievable. Because guess what else? Everybody, guess what every other salesperson says when they come in the room? They make something up. They say something that's not right. They look like an idiot. And all of a sudden, the trust goes out the window. You know, we saw people that go. Oh, nobody ever says that, you know. So, like, we believe everything else that you guys are you guys are saying and trying to sell us. So, I always take the same approach with people. Like, literally, the one of the first fellows we hired, John, he had tons of experience not only in you know advertising, but specifically in podcast advertising. And I'd call him up once a week. I go, John, I had this client. He asked me this question, "What do I do?" And he'd be like. I think at first he thought I was just trying to like, you know, be like engaging with my team and all. I literally didn't know. I'm like, John, I have no idea like what to tell this guy. So like, you, you, you know, what do you, what would, what would you do? And, 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 and again, he, at first I think he was like taken aback a little bit, but then after that, like, I value your opinion, John, tell me, you know, what we need to tell this person because I need to, you know, I don't know. I need to figure it out. Um, and that's what we do. We hired people that were smarter than us and knew more and then sat back and let them do their thing. And we kind of steered the ship and, you know, do that kind of thing. But I think it's like, you know, I think it's a bit of humility that not everybody has that they can admit they don't know something. <laughs> How well did you get this company running without you? And when I say you, I'm meaning you, Trevor, and you, Dave. I mean, what, did you get it to a point that it could run without you, or was it still um, dependent? When we, you know, when we kind of did our transaction, like I wasn't doing, a, I wasn't doing any sales anymore. Like I wasn't, like, you know, sending out proposals, signing contracts, you know, that kind of thing. I was strictly running the business, managing the business. Same, you know, we were all, Trevor and I were both doing things that, you know, we needed to do. Like Trevor was still running payroll, right? <laughs> or like, you know, stuff like that. But because we wanted to keep it lean, we didn't want to hire, you know, a, a full-time finance person. Um, but I think it was running, you know, if we both got hit by a bus, you know, right before it happened, I don't think it would be great, but the company would still continue on because, you know, people were pretty self-sufficient. Trevor in the end? Yeah, uh, you know, on my side, like I was more of the you know tech and you know, the technology side of Scott, you know, for the UI UX building the site. But that's a lot of that legwork was kind of done, right? So now I kind of transitioned into a different role where you know I kind of head up the publisher side. So I work with you know getting some of the bigger shows on board and you know selling them the dream to work with us. So I took on that salesman role, um, which seemed to resonate with me and it worked pretty good. So and, and honestly, like when we sold the company. Um, it could have ran self, you know, by itself, no problems at all. But I think my side, the publisher side, could have been beefed up a little bit more. And I kind of spent a lot of time after we sold Ellipson mm -hmm. to kind of beef up that side. And, and today we're in a much better spot than we were back then, whereas a lot of just Trevor doing that. And now we have, you know, many different publishing people that, you know, can help the publishers. So, but uh, yeah, it's a good Back question. to the numbers for a second. So 350, 3.58 and 12 ballpark in 2020. Uh, and again, you're, you're keeping 30 points on that. I'm, I'm just reading between the lines saying there's employees and technology and so forth that the company was growing fast, but you were having to 
feed most of the profits back into the development. Would that be fair to say? I mean, were you were you declaring much in the way of EBITDA, or were you pouring it all back in, or how did how was that? I mean, we weren't. I mean, we were investing in the business in terms of hiring more people, but no, like we were making we were making money. Like it was there was EBITDA there. Like we were pay, we were paying taxes on it. Yeah. Um, so it's um. It's one of those things where I think we built a really good machine early on. And what's kind of funny, John, is like the the product in terms of the functionality that was there the day I got involved. One of the first things that we did was based on me talking to a lot of people on the advertiser side, we actually stripped back a bunch of the functionality hmm. to really force people to go down the funnel of talking to a salesperson that could educate them and actually bring them, you know, on board and get them spending with us and accelerating that. So we didn't need to invest a ton in the product. We didn't need to hire five developers. Scott's, you know, a genius. Um, and he's, you know, the guy pumps out great code, you know, faster and better than anybody I've ever worked with. So, um, you know, that was one of those things we didn't need to heavily invest in terms of, you know, say the underlying technology to grow. It was really just in terms of people, you know, marketing, you know, things like that. But, you know, we were, we were pretty profitable. Yeah, we had a nice natural, you know, just growth to us. It wasn't we were never like stressed out, you know, too much. And and we we had a really good system that Dave put in place to hire more salespeople, you know, to get them trained, to get them, you know, up to speed on like how to sell. And so every year, like Dave said, we just hire a couple of new salespeople and the revenues would just keep ballooning up, you know. So it was very much a natural process, which is kind of probably odd because because you truly be a true startup and throw a bunch of cash and really you know, really grow it a lot quicker. Possibly, but then things can go problematic too, right? So I like I like our style. I kind of like what we did, and you know my my old culture. I said like, don't be ashamed to take a money out of the company. You know, I mean, it was kind of early days, right? So we we could maybe reinvested more, but like like we said, we grew quite fast, and it was comfortable growth. And uh, but yet, you should be ashamed taking some money out too and enjoying yourselves a little bit too. And so you guys took out some cash along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we took out distributions. Yeah, it wasn't right away. We we had to pay ourselves zero dollars for like the first couple of years. So everything was reinvested, you know? So probably something, you know, key for the listeners to understand, like, you know, there's there's the first 24 months, we didn't take one dime out of the company, so. Yeah. How did you think about valuation? As, as you're growing, you're going from eight to 12 million between 2019 and 2020. Did you, did you start to envision what the company might be worth? I think the, the interesting part about where we were at that time a frame was there was a lot of m a activity happening in our space um as you know john being a podcaster you know podcasting kind of was really really you know taken off around that Mm -hmm. time 2018 2019 2020 um and you know there was there was transactions happening so you know we kind of had an idea of what we thought the company was worth and could be worth um what did you really I mean, comps that were announced out there, deals. Were there you know. other networks like yours that were oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. like yours? Yep. There was a company called uh, Midroll, which basically got acquired by a company called Stitcher. Um, I don't know what year that was, 2018. They then got acquired by SiriusXM. Um, you know, there's, there, there's, there was a bunch of different transactions, some more like on the, on the podcast, like ad tech side, and some that were more on the advertising side. Um, how do but you it gave us a good enough like this. Is it based on revenue or EBITDA or is there some other metric? I mean, frankly, a lot of the transactions that were happening were kind of like revenue-based multiples because unfortunately, like a lot of them weren't profitable. <laughs> so, you know, and you know, the beauty is 
Um, and I've heard this from um, even people on your show before, John, is like, you always want to consider like, what's the best metric to be thinking about in terms of getting the best valuation? Is it EBITDA or is it, you know, top line? Um, a lot of the deals that were going on in our space were kind of top line driven. So that's kind of what we... What did Stitcher pay for mid-roll? It's been a while. I'd have to look back. I, I have an idea, but I don't. I don't know if that's public. No, I think it. Was, I it think public? it was. I think it was, but I don't remember what it was. But it was. It was like was a. It? Th- yeah. it was like a three or four multiple or something like that. I, On I, revenue, I can't really yeah. recall. Yeah, of revenue. Yeah, I want to say they were over fifty. So it was, it was pretty heavy. Yeah. Got it. So you had that as a benchmark in your mm-hmm. mind. So that helps you start to think about what it might what it might be worth. Mm-hmm. What was the trigger that made you go from kind of building the business to starting to contemplate potentially selling it, Trevor? You know, honestly, like Dave said, I mean, we started working on this thing, you know, 2018 together and, you know, we've kind of just built this thing, you know, heads down, work boots out for a couple of years. And then honestly, John, like early on, we got an offer, you know, pretty fast from a company, you know, that was a Lipson that, you know, pretty, pretty, Put a pretty pretty strong offer, you know, to us to buy us. So we're like, geez, that kind of right, right fast. So then, twenty nineteen, that happened. Yeah, was it twenty nineteen? Yeah. Offer? So that was quick. And then they were like, we got to find an M and A banker that can help us with that. And honestly enough, like you know, the next conference we went to, you know, Yale at you know Tito's presented himself to us because like, there's so much M and A activity. So I think he signaled us out as maybe a good candidate, possibly for him down the road. And and then shortly after that, we got this first offer, and we couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. And then so. We've been going through this whole buyout process. It's been like three years, honestly, where we started from yeah. way back then. And then COVID hit, stopped things. We can talk about that later, but it's been a long process to finally get to our yeah. you know, official buyout. So, and to, so to give you an cycle. idea, John, that was probably, again, probably sometime Q4 of 2019, where that company approached us and was like, hey, we like what you guys are doing. You know, we want to talk about, you know, as they always do, you know, like some kind of partnership. And then that turned into, they kind of gave us a, like a, like a, non-binding letter of intent again i don't remember what it was but it was probably 20 to 25 million dollars and we're like you know we're whatever two uh, not even two years into the business and we're like oh wow this is interesting um and then of course we had a couple meetings and then COVID hits and it was a company that did not fare well you know during COVID. um so there they were a publicly traded company it's like a huge took a huge hit um, and from our perspective, we're like, wow, this, this is done. Like, you know, no one's going to be doing anything during COVID. And then what happened was there was a little dip. And then like the advertising market just kicked right back in and podcasting because people are at home, you know, like companies like, you know, HelloFresh and, you know, BetterHelp and all these companies are like pumping money into to podcast advertising. And then what happened is like, like Trevor mentioned, um, the banker that we actually had a relationship with kind of casually over the years, like meet up at conferences, Hey, what's going on? What's happening in the market? They kind of said, look, this deal probably not going to happen. Like, you know, what do you guys want to do? And we did, what we didn't want to do is like run some big process to go out there and, you know, give our book to everybody in the, in their uncle to see who's interested. So we said, okay, yeah, why don't you go and like bang on a few doors and see, you know, if anybody is potentially interested and, you know, maybe we'll consider it if something comes along. Um, and then we kind of got back into that, you know, later, probably in the fall of, uh, of 2020. So that kind of got us back into the, back into the mix. <laughs> when you say that, so when you say what specifically got you back in the mix, the, 
the the banker went out, knocked on a few doors, and did get some interest. Is that what you're saying? He got some interest. Yeah, he he did. And and you know there was a few companies, um, and one one was actually Libsyn, who we ended up going with. Um, it was the kind of their previous management before the company kind of started to go through this this transformation. Um, there was another company that I won't name um, that they essentially, and this is where it gets a little wild. Um, they came to the table, really good offer, bunch of conversations, signed a letter of intent, good structure, good valuation. Um, and then we went into due diligence, got pretty deep into that. We were trying to close the deal by the end of the year for several reasons. One being, you know, time kills deals. So you want to get it done fast. And, you, and, you know, end of the year is a nice deadline. <laughs> there was also some potential tax changes coming down, coming down the pipeline that Trevor and I were trying to avoid, uh, which didn't really happen. But um, strangely enough, the, um, the exclusivity period expired over the holidays and nobody noticed except for our bankers. Um, and over the holidays, Trevor had got a text from um, Brad, who's now the CEO of Libsyn, saying, hey, Trevor, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Um, not sure where, what you guys are up to, but like, just wanted to check in, see how things are. And we talked to our bankers and they said, Hey, like this expired. So you can, you guys can do, you know, you're not restricted right now to do whatever you want to do. And so what we did is went back to Brad and said, Hey, um, you know, he had kind of like got more involved in Libsyn, the previous management had kind of like transitioned out. And basically Trevor and I said, Hey, you know, we really like you guys. We always had good, you know, good rapport. Um, unfortunately we couldn't get to something previously, but you know, if you guys could come to the table with, you know, X, Y, and Z, um, maybe we could do something. And they hustled around during the holidays, came back and said, here you go. And that's what we ended up going with. <laughs> what so, was the X, it, Y, and Z Trevor? We basically just outlined the structure, right? Like, I mean, yeah. And what was the structure you were Yeah, yeah. We, you know, the first the first company that we got back in was, you know, their their bid was stronger than than Lipson. So that's why they said we, we were going down that route to sign off and get that get the deal done. And then like they said that expired and I and I told Brad, I said this might be a late Christmas gift because they wanted this thing so bad. I could tell we could feel it, you know. And we like those guys too. We we like the other company too a lot. So but uh I told Brad, I said, you got to really make it count. I said, give us something that we can't deny and refuse. I said, make it strong. And gosh dang it, they didn't get it done, you know? So, and, and, and honestly, it was a good mm -hmm. value. You know, we could talk about that later too. But So yeah, everything worked out. Got so many questions, guys. This is great. So we'll call <laughs> the other company rather the, it's like, it's like the, the artist formerly known as Prince, the other company and Libsyn. So where do I start? Okay. So in the original letters of intent. You had Libsyn and the other company. The other company's offer was stronger. Uh, how did you handle saying no to Libsyn? I mean, that's what you let the bankers do, right? <laughs> no. no, I mean, we, we had a good relationship with them. I mean, it was really like, guys, you know, we really, we really like you. Um, but we just can't, we just couldn't make the numbers work. And I think at the time they were putting their best foot forward based on kind of what they knew. But I think what happened is over the course of say the next, I don't know, four months or so, it really became apparent to Libsyn that like advertising is the way that the podcast market market is going. 
They had great, you know, hosting technology. They had some other products for podcasters, but they're like, if we really want to kind of take Libsyn, who's been around for years and years, like I think the company's about 15, actually 18 years old this year. Um, and we want to take it into like the next, you know, realm of, of, of kind of success in the podcast game. We have to get into podcast advertising. Um, and I think over the that short period, we literally just became, you know, more valuable to them as a, you know, kind of as a, an addition to their business. So it's it worked out great. It's important for the listener as they're tracking in the story to know the final value that Libsyn paid. They publicly announced, so we can talk to it. It was mm-hmm. 18, $18 million of cash, $10 million in Libsyn stock, and a $2 million earnout. if I've got those numbers right. That's correct. about right. Okay. So that's yeah. where, like, after all was said and done, we landed. So how far away from those, like, that's got a $30 million valuation, although there's some structure there. How, how far away from 30 was Libsyn the first time around when you said, no, it's not going to work? Less than half. Less wow. than half. It was, it was sub- substantially different. Yeah. Okay. So... That's helpful. And then the other company, how close were they to the ultimate 30? It wasn't that far off. It wasn't that far off. Okay. So they're sort of nibbling at the edges of this, of this 30 number. Now, did you go back to Brad over the holidays and, and say, if you guys can get to 30, we can do a deal? Yeah. I made I mean, that call to him. I was pretty nervous. And Dave said, he goes, I think you're freaking nuts. He goes, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. I said, I said, what do we have to lose? I said, I, I really feel like the company's valued probably at that and maybe even a little bit more than that. And that's where Dave and I different, you know, we had a little bit of disagreement, but it was still a healthy disagreement. So I said, let me, let me try this. I said, I feel really good about this. And I, and I knew these guys really wanted us and they fed out some other ideas. I think that went sour in the meantime, which made us even more, I think, uh, strategic for them to, you know, to buy out. So, so let me go for it, you know, and, you know, I got him and Max, the banker on and, you know, they, we got into the end of the call, like, okay, we'll be in touch. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, awesome. <laughs> so I called him, I'm like, you're not going to believe it. Like, hmm. I think they're in, you know, he's like, what do you mean they're yeah. in? And I'm like, they, I think they're going to do it. So, and I think, so yeah, it was, it was pretty and I think cool. the good, the, the, the good aspect of that whole exchange was that we had a lot of trust for, for Brad and Max, like, throughout the whole dealings with them before they yeah. were great so like we you know i think we really trusted that if, if they said they were going to do something they were going to do it um, you used to name which max was, which I, was good. brad was the is the incoming ceo of libsyn yep. sorry max is max who? is their bank it was their banker so the I'm counterpart sorry. to yeah. our yeah. banker Tilos. yeah that was kind of working yeah. on their buy side got it that's helpful for sure so what made the deal, the exclusivity expire? The obvious answer is time. It was a 60-day exclusivity, I'm assuming, and 60 days clicked over in over the holiday season without anybody knowing. What were they, was this other company dragging their heels or why was diligence protracted yeah. past the 60 days? Yeah. I don't even want to get into too many details on that, John, but I will. <laughs> I would say, you know dragging heels would be a good way to put it. And it just wasn't like, it wasn't going smoothly during due diligence. Like there was, it was just taking a, taking quite a while. And, um, there were some kind of red flags. There were some red flags that we were like, eh, there were some red know. flags. There was some pressure too that we felt where if, if we would have kept going down that route, 
I think we would have been chiseled a little bit. You know, we didn't feel good about that. We thought the value was very fair where it started from. So that didn't happen, you know, but we felt it maybe could have happened. Mm -hmm. So that's why Lipson started to become more interesting all the time too at the same mm -hmm. time. So. so read between the lines. And again, I just want to make sure I understand the, you were left with the impression during the diligence period that the reason they were dragging their heels in part was to come up with justification to retrade the deal that they were manufacturing or attempting to manufacture uh, things that weren't I think, necessarily. I think John, the, the issue is, and, and Trevor and I have kind of learned this on the flip side since we became, you know, part of Libsyn and working with Brad and, and Max is that when you're, when you're a buyer, you have to do a lot of work during these due diligence periods and courting a company that you want to acquire to make them feel good, make them feel comfortable, make them feel like this deal is going to happen. And there's a lot of that like bedside manner that I think a lot of people underestimate. And I think that that other company just didn't have that. Um, and so when we did get into the deal with Libsyn, even though like, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I'm sure, it like was, it took a while. Like it was still like a little bit of a bumpy ride. They were just really good at like constantly reassuring us, checking in, how's it going? Um, and I think that's really important um, for people that are on the buy side because a lot of sellers have multiple options, right? Um, and if they don't feel good about the ability to close or the willingness to close or the enthusiasm to get it done, like that, that can, like Trevor and I were, were freaking out a little bit, you know, around that holiday period. We're like, what's going on here? Like, we're not, we're not getting any feedback. Like, is this deal dead? Like it wasn't the best, it wasn't the best Christmas at the Hantley and Smithland household. <laughs> Our wives will tell you. <laughs> What was it like to go back to the other company and say, sorry, guys, the exclusivity period is over. We're moving on. Slightly, slightly awkward. <laughs> what was their reaction? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were, they tried to, you know, apologize and get it back on track and, you know, figure out how they could write the ship, but it was kind of, you know, kind of too late. So. Now, with that being said, I, I, I had Trevor and I are also yeah. very conscious of like, we don't, regardless of anybody's actions towards us in business, we both believe you never, you know, never burn the bridge, you know, always keep that open because you never know what can happen, right? Like we were very, you know, professional and, um, you know, we do, I mean, we, the, we like the people that, you know, we were dealing with there. Yeah. So we kind of kept that relationship because you never know what could happen. Maybe this thing falls apart and we got to go back to them, right? So um, I think that, that was really a, important aspect too. Yeah, John, one thing I did there, you know, I reached out to that CEO, you know, I said, why don't we just jump on a call, just me and you, let's have a personal conversation without the bankers, without the attorneys, without mm -hmm. everybody else in the room. It's just, it's just, we'll tell you where we're kind of at, you know, so I did that. I called, you know, XYZ person and we had a great discussion for about an hour, you know, and, and uh, of course he was pretty upset, you know, he really wanted to do the deal, um, but he understood where we're coming from. And, and I think he realized that, you know, their company was a lot to blame for the deal going a little bit sideways. So he understood like our perspective and, but I understood where they were coming from too with the deep due diligence, which you need to do, right? So I think we we had appreciation and respect for each other that we still have today. And like they said, we'll never burn a bridge and there's nothing to burn here, right? It's just, you know, things happen for a reason and there's no hard feelings, but I think it was meaningful to have that direct conversation without everybody. And Trevor, was that a courtesy call on your behalf, meaning, 
the decision was made. You weren't going back on the decision. This was a courtesy call to maintain that relationship. Or did you go into the call with the CEO still open to the idea of being acquired by them? No, our minds were made up. It was more of a courtesy thing, you know, and, and that person too was trying to tell me like, you know, as a shape, cause they had some really big things coming up and, you know, maybe trying to sell me a little bit on coming back, you know, which I appreciate because I probably do the same thing, you know, but our mind was truly made up at that point. So it was yeah, more of a courtesy. Uh, and how did you know you weren't going from the, the fry pan into the fire in the sense that here you were all falling back in love with Libsyn? <laughs> how did you know they weren't going to pull the same stuff or that the deal was in fact going to close with them? I mean, there was a risk. Yeah, I, know, like, right? I think it was, I think it was, just, yeah, we just had yeah. Feeling for and it was it was yeah. they had built a lot of trust with us. Um, you know we you know we basically made sure like they could do the deal. Like our bankers were like, hey, like how are you funding this deal? Like where is this coming from? Um, get into like get get into a little bit more detail before we decide to you know kind of hop in um, to that into that deal with them. But like I said I think a lot of it was trust. We trusted the people. I've- I think the vibe, John, too, it was much more positive and healthy. Like every time we get on, you know, a call with Brad and Max and whomever on their side, like you could tell they're excited about doing the deal where the other company, I, I know they're, 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 they were probably bigger, and honestly, but like I didn't feel that same energy sometimes, you know. So and they say it takes it takes both parties wanting to do the deal to make the deal happen. Right. So at the end, it felt like that we kind of wanted to do the deal, but they were like kind of just neutral about it where with you know, Brad and that team, they always were gun ho to get something, get to get it done. And we felt that energy. And I think we, you know, thought that enthusiasm was there and we had trust. And what that. was your reaction to their offer? So they got to 30. Uh, and I'm looking at percentage wise, it looks like, you know, roughly 60 odd percent was in cash. About a third was in shares and a small percentage in earnout. What was your reaction to the term sheet? structured 60 30 whatever two or whatever it is i mean i think the term sheet was fine i think this next like the next phase of that exercise was really where the bankers come into play because you know they're talking about you know escrows and this and that and all i'm sure trevor and i could figure it out but you know they were negotiating some terms that we didn't understand but we knew they were looking out for us right um, you know, working capital that's being left in the business versus, you know, getting credit for that, you know, all that kind of stuff. We're just like, Yale, John, Caroline, you handle that. You let us know if you have any questions. Um, and so I think that was huge. And, you know, we mentioned that to you earlier is that, you know, if anybody's ever scratching their head, like, is this banker worth their, you know, X percent what you're paying them? The answer is, if it's a good one, yes, they are, you know, 100 times and, over. And to be clear, Yale, John, and Caroline were representatives of the M&A firm, that Southside M&A firm that represented you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, John, John for me, you know, I mean, I, I want to make sure that we're getting a proper valuation, you know, and I think, you know, a proper, you know, exit here for the time and energy we put into it. I want to make sure the team was going to be taken care of, you know, like they were going to do mm-hmm. a bunch of malicious things where they're going to fire everybody because I really – do consider our team somewhat family. I look out after these guys. So I want to make sure that this transition was going to be a smooth one. So we, we did vet all that out before the deal, but I got to tell you, you get that true term sheet, you know, it's, it's a game changer for your life, right? I mean, it's, it's holy F money, right? You, I, I remember that day that thing, you know, got sent to us. I locked myself in my office where I am today and you almost like tear up. It's like, it's, it's instant, like generational wealth, right? And it, it changes your whole family and everything you could do in this lifetime forever. And maybe your kids in their future forever, right? So 
it was, it was a big deal for me. And, you know, not just to talk about financials, but, you know, that was a big, you know, that was a big piece here, obviously. And uh, something that it, it does change things, you know, and, uh, and, and it's a freaking dream come true, right? In a certain way. So. Yeah, I think, John, one of the things that just kind of, I just triggered in my memory, listening to Trevor there, is one of the weird dynamics that him and I had, like, we don't disagree on a whole lot. And if we do, we're kind of like, you know, it's all constructive. But one of the things that we didn't sometimes see eye to eye on was like when the, when things got a little bit tough, you know, Trevor would be like, hey, are we doing this too early? Should we just like ride this out, you know, and, you know, go for, you know, don't go for 30. Let's go for 50. Let's go for 100 million. And I'm like, he had that perspective. My perspective is a little bit tainted because I had been through one company that we probably should have sold that we didn't. Then the, and the and the market changed and we were kind of kicking ourselves a little bit um, in the past. And I was kind of trying to relay that to Trevor, like, you know, things are really good right now. This is a lot. This is a great deal. It might be not be a might be not be a grand slam, but it's certainly a triple, you know, or, you know, maybe you're on, your way to, you're on your way to third base. Um, so I think that was one of the things that I was like, Trevor, like, I respect that you want to like keep rolling and maybe, you know, we double this thing again in the next year. But like, Sometimes you just got to take the triple and, you know, get back at the plate, you know, for the next one. <laughs> Trevor, talk, talk to me more about the the letter of intent. You say that it, you kind of closed the door and teared up a little bit. Just go further for me a little bit. Like what was so meaningful about that, that money? Yeah, you know, I think I had, a, you know, we, I have had a humble beginnings, you know, like, I, you know, my family got divorced when I was, when I was very young and, you know, my dad was a custom software programmer. So, you know, he did fine in his own right, you know, but being divorced, I think he split the wealth a little bit. So you don't have a lot of money when, you, when you're when you're in that situation, right? Because you got to split and divide and you know, that's just the way it goes. So, you know, I was always that kid that, you know, tried to be cool by, you know, I had generic tennis shoes, right? I would, I would write my Nike symbol <laughs> on my shoe to try to fit in. So like, I've been through a lot of stuff with that, you know, so I think, you know, coming to money, you really appreciate, respect it more than like just giving, you know, being given it. And no disrespect to anybody, you know, that's, uh, that, that gets it that way too. But uh, so, yeah, it, it was really a big experience for me to go through this whole ride. You know, you start with not a whole lot of anything to like, you know, make it really good money. And then you have this, you know, this whole, you know, uh, waterfall, you know, uh, thing happen. So, yeah, it was just, it was this, like I said, it's life changing. And, you know, we were doing good before, like Dave said, we, we were, our distributions were quite strong, but uh Nothing like this that sets you up for life, right? And it's your kids, it's your family. Like we're helping our family out to this day, doing generous, you know, gener generous things for them and you know, our friends. Like I'm always the guy buying this and that. Like it's just it's a really fun thing to do in life, you know, to be, you know, to have a lifestyle like this and to be in a position like this, right? So well said. What happens next? So you agree to terms. <laughs> I have a I have a feeling there may so be what, a story on the table. What happens? What happens next is sign everything. So we signed the LOI. Then we went down the path of the definitive agreements. That's where you start paying very expensive lawyers that are, you know, and we had fantastic lawyers. Like literally, I don't think there's any better ones out there. Um, and then we decided, well, we didn't decide anything, but they, you know, they came to the determination that because of the size of our business relative to theirs and Libsyn being a publicly traded company at the time, we need to have our financials audited by like a, you know, basically a, a, um, a public accountant that audits publicly traded companies. 
Um, and Trevor and I are thinking, well, you know, we don't really even have a full-time bookkeeper. Um, one time we were, we took our wives on a vacation down to uh, Key West and we were sitting in a bar and we met this guy and he was like a really successful business guy. And we're telling about the company and we said, what do you, you know, what would you do if you were us? Like, what's, what's a good piece of advice for us based on where we're at? And he said, get a CFO, no hesitation at all. Get a CFO. We went back to our beers and it's like, what does this guy know, right? <laughs> um, of course, um, around January of 2021 is that, that advice sounded really good because we then had to get into an audit of all of our financial statements. And the thing is, everything was very clean. Like from the time we started the audit, I got to look at the time frame, but I think it was around... It was around March, I think, Trevor, that we signed the actual like definitive agreements subject to yeah. an audit. Um, and we actually closed on June 3rd. Um, so throughout that period, basically, I would be at my computer talking to auditors deep into every single evening about, hey, we need a copy of this invoice. You know, where's the signed agreement for this, you know? Hey, we need to find the bank transaction for $48.12 that came from this advertiser for this one ad spot on this one show. And like we're talking, like our, our system processes thousands of ad spots every single month. And it was literally months of work doing that. And it was basically my version of living hell. Um, <laughs> thankfully, Trevor had a, a great neighbor at the time. Um, who's like a longtime accountant, you know, CFO named Roger. Unfortunately, he actually passed away a little while ago. Um, he came in, helped us, and like he was working with auditors, everything, and we finally got the thing done. And I think the difference, John, between our financials when we actually started it and the end of the audit was like, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars. Like it was, it was literally nothing, but it was this exercise that was just the most unbelievable, you know, um, you know, drawn out um, audit. And to the auditor's credit, like they were great people. It's just that we we just didn't have our our books in order, right? In terms of the, re the proper revenue recognition and all this kind of stuff. So big, big learning for us and for everybody out there, like just get your stuff in order ASAP. Um, I plan on, you know, if we ever go through this again, Trevor and I said, we're literally going to, if we go through another transaction down the road in the future, we're literally going to say, here's our audited financial statements. Like that's, you know, we're doing that ahead of time <laughs> every single year. Yeah. There's a whole, there's a rising sort of offering from a lot of the accounting firms called pre-diligence, which is effectively what you're describing, mm -hmm. right? Basically putting together, uh, you know, a, a package of financial information, mm -hmm. which eliminates or avoids the need to yeah. do what you did at the last second. So, so well, and then the other stress during that period is we're going through an audit, but at the same time, it's like months. So we're like, we better keep running this business well and keep growing because anything can happen. Right. So it was kind of juggling those two things. And like, I wasn't, again, you can ask my wife, I probably wasn't a, you know, great person to hang around for that, you know, several month period. It was a vicious cycle too, John. I mean, you get like all the way done with that. Then like, oh, well, then another month closed. How about that month? We're like, oh gosh, it's like a vicious cycle. We can't, we can't keep up. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get the sense at all that you were trying, that they were trying to retrade the deal? Like that the, the reason no. for all the financial scrutiny was just to trump up some 
you know, no, it was just lower. literally like they, they, it was because the, the size of the transaction, like it was a pretty small market cap, you know, public company. So they're like, this is, you know, this is regulated. You know, they have to go through this, yeah, this, this, um, this audit. So what was the market cap of Libsyn at the time ballpark? So it was relatively, it was like just over a hundred million. Okay. Um, so this is a terms of market $30 million cap, so deal sizable million dollar transaction dollar. for a hundred yeah. million dollar market cap company. Yeah. 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 Talk to me about the liquidity of the stock. Because uh, the majority of your compensation came in the form of cash, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But there is a significant minority in, in shares of Libsyn, mm-hmm. which I don't understand. I looked in, in researching for this episode, I looked and it, it looked like it's it was very, over the counter very stock. Com- very thinly, complicated, John. Thinly traded. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So again, without getting into too much detail, long story short, over OTC, you know, publicly traded company, hundred million dollar um, market cap at the time. Previous management had some kind of like, not like material issues, but they had some like tax filing issues that were like, you know, kind of flagged with the SEC. They had to go back and clean up all this stuff, do audits like back like four years or something. And that's when kind of the new management came in, cleaned everything up. Throughout that period, we essentially deregistered the stock. That was actually like previous, um, um, I think it was like February this year, with the intention that deregister, then go public again on a, 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 a larger national exchange. Now, of course, based on where the markets are at, like we're basically ready to do that. But the question is, um, what's the timing of that based on where the market's at today? So um, that's kind of that's kind of where that's at. In our, in our you know, John, it's 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 uh, I could probably say it's, it's over three years. So we we get you know a piece yeah we of have it, some, some vesting there yeah every every year we get a best yeah. best investment schedule every year we get one third one third one third. Until the three-year mark, then we fully own and, all of it. And that's so. contingent on you achieving, is it revenue goals or profitability goals? Or- no, that's just us being around. Just time-based. Okay. Yeah, we had a, we had a one-year, we basically had a one-year earnout. Um, Correct. And it was kind of odd because it was for the calendar year 2021. Um, and we didn't close till June. Um, and that was contingent upon hitting um, uh, $18 million in revenue. Um, and needless to say, we blew that out of the water. I think we achieved it by October or something like that. So that was good. That's great. And so that that makes sense. So the stock, and again, the reason I'm asking this is that in particular these days, a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this would be offered their consideration in some sort of stock. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that may or may not be liquid or you know, be, be valuable at all. Uh, so how did you, how did you think about th- that stock in Libsyn? Like, how did you, like, did you, mm-hmm. did you think about yeah. liquidity and, 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 and if, and when it would become liquid, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the goal with Libsyn now is to get, you know, public again. So there will be some liquidity there on a larger exchange, but I think from our perspective, you know, we saw a lot of value in terms of, hey, we're adding a lot of revenue to the overall, you know, company. Um, you know, Trevor and I became pretty large shareholders of the stock. I mean, we can kind of do the math. 10, 10, $10 million of stock at $100 million valuations around yeah. 10%, right? Um, so what we saw is like, 
we believe that that's that company at the time was undervalued um and you know we could we could add a lot of fuel to that fire and and frankly like we're not quite sure what the future holds in terms of um the stock um you know we just keep plugging away running a great company for the next few years or somebody else comes along but you know there's a possibility that the stock portion could become worth more than the cash portion mm -hmm. um, that we already received so and that's kind of what we're what we're working on every day now <laughs> Yeah, I think I think John too. We believed in the board. We believed in Brad. You know, we believed in their vision too. That kind of you know really changed Lipson as we all once knew it. You know, this is now it's like Lipson 2.0. It's 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 a lot different. There's a lot more services under one roof, and it would drastically change things. So we felt like you know the stock will probably be the biggest piece to this you know acquisition. Honestly, you know you know at some point. But uh, so yeah, we just felt really good about the future and. You know, can we turn to four bucks share, you know, triple that? We think absolutely, and maybe even above that. So, yeah, we just feel really good about the new management team in place, you know, us helping efforts there. And, yeah, so we're kind of baking on all of us partaking. I should have mentioned out of the gate uh, a couple of things. Libsyn, for folks who haven't heard that name, if you're not a podcaster, you may not have heard it. <laughs> they host podcasts, including Built to Sell Radio. So we <laughs> take a, an audio file that we record today, and then we we – we effectively upload it to Libsyn and then Libsyn hosts it and then serves it into your earbuds through whatever you listen to this podcast on. So it's sort of the plumbing of the podcast world but exactly. behind the scenes uh, that you don't necessarily know unless you're a podcaster, but it's, I think the number one or certainly one of the, the biggest sort of uh, podcast hosts out there. So, and it's been great. We've used it for six years or whatever it is. So. So John, we do have a plug here. We uh, we we came to this. You know, we had to have a coupon for you. That's what we do as, as podcast advertising guys. So anybody out there that's a podcast host that wants to join Lipson, you'll get two months free, which is the only deal that uh, that's around that we actually this is this is a specific deal just for two months off. It's the best deal out there, and you just use coupon code Built to Sell. It's Built and then number two and Sell. Oh wait, so All right, I that's it. We, we had to do that because it's 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 in our DNA. It's what that's we do. Podcast right? advertising at its best. <laughs> Always be, closing now. always be closing. Always be closing. We're the only guys that can get away with the job ever on your show. <laughs> ABC, always be closing. I want to get the coupon code right. Built the number two, like the two mm -hmm. number. Yes. And then sell is the code. We'll put that also in the show notes for folks who want to Love link it. to it. And uh, that's that's awesome. Are you guys up for a quick lightning round of questions? Just a phrase or two answers sure. would be great before we let you go. Um and maybe I'll just, I'll, we'll alternate this. So you guys will have to sure, decide amongst yourselves which question is who's most um, uh, able to answer each question. But what was the slimiest trick a prospective acquirer tried to pull on you during the course of selling your company? Hmm. I don't really know if we had any, John. I don't think so. I think in my past, yeah. in my past experience, this isn't related to this deal, but like there are some very weird structures out there. Um, when you get into like the kind of the private equity world, which I would caution people to learn deep about if they're going to go down that road. <laughs> like what? When you say weird structure, describe it. Like things like participating preferred shares as an example or something like that where you read it and you go, oh, interesting. Um, like that whole um, that whole structure is not great for the actual founder entrepreneur. So that's from yeah, previous we'll, experience. Yeah, We'll put a definition of participating preferred <laughs> in the show notes for folks to read up on for sure. Uh, biggest mistake you made during the process of selling your company? 
I mean, the books probably could have been tighter. Yeah. I mean, that's not like a mistake, but it's a big issue, right? That we could have probably tightened up things on greatly. So I, I would say that's definitely one of them. It would have reduced a lot of stress and shortened the timeline quite a bit. That's for sure. Yeah. For what sure. was the lowest point that you reached emotionally during the process? I reached some low points during the audit. Um, the auditors were, yeah, the auditors were actually based in Utah. So literally they'd be working until, you know, um, like eight, nine o'clock Eastern. And I'd literally be having dinner with my wife and I'd be like, hold on, auditor is calling. I got to go to my desk. And I would just leave the dinner table and like come upstairs and sit at my desk for an hour talking to them. So that wasn't, that wasn't that much fun. Oh, it just got so exhausting at the end too. I mean, we've been doing this for two years, this whole mm -hmm. process. We were just kind of beaten up and battered and kind of just ready to be done with it. And then, you know, the audit was the last piece, which is one of the most challenging pieces. And thank God Dave, you know, did most of the efforts there, but it was just a lot of work, the whole thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, it, it was- What dreamy. was the highest point you reached emotionally? That term sheet <laughs> for me. Or when, or when we saw the wires come through. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a big deal. Where too. were you, Dave, yeah. when the wires came through? I was actually sitting, um, so my wife and I do uh, competitive equestrian. Um, so I was actually sitting at a horse show up in um, North Carolina, just watching during the afternoon and Trevor and I were on the phone and I was like, oh, there it goes. Just came in. So that was cool. Did you update? Were you looking at your Bank of America, like refreshing your screen on your phone? Well, I was, so I was, I'm with like a kind of a smaller bank that's like based in Nashville and like the, I don't know if their wire system's slower, but everybody else is emailing, yep, got my wire, got my wire. I'm like, I don't know my wire yet. What's going on? <laughs> Mine took like hours, hours longer. So yeah, I was, I was. I think it was like a four hour process. So John, there's so many like checks and balances for dollars at size. I mean, suppose that the banker said, you know, so it took a while and. My business banker actually called me and said, yeah, it's in, you know, he goes, and congratulations, that's the biggest wire our bank has ever taken, which is kind of cool, you know, and it's a small community bank, so it's not that big a deal, but it's still kind of fun to hear I that. I bet, <laughs> I bet, I bet. What did you turn to in the way of resources, tools to educate yourself? And Dave, in your case, you had been through a couple of exits. One, it doesn't sound like uh, there were some bumps in the road, but so you had some personal experience. What else did, were there, is there a book you could point people towards or a, a <laughs> course or a conference or a, anything that you could sort of recommend to people? Yeah, I mean, John, we, I, we joked about this before, but Trevor literally has your book on his shelf and I pulled off my Built to Sell book, which is one of your old school originals. <laughs> Dave, you've got um, a classic there, man. And I, yeah, and I'm a, and I'm a, I'm a frequent listener of your podcast. Um, and then I think we leaned on our bankers a lot because these guys have been through, you know, a ton yeah, let's of give them a deals. Plug. What's the, well, let's yeah. give them a plug. What's the name of the firm? Yeah. So it's a, it's a firm called Telos Advisors, T-E-L-O-S. And they've done like, they did that, the deal we talked about earlier, that mid-roll selling to, um, uh, actually mid-roll selling to Scripps Media back then. Then they changed the name. It got, they got kind of old wacky back then but so they actually did that deal so they had done a bunch of deals in our space they knew who the buyers are who the sellers are what the structures are so they were you know super valuable um and i think once you i mean you don't really ever learn everything there is to know about this stuff until you go through it like trevor like how much crazy stuff did you learn on this first kind of go around of <laughs> yeah, so much. And like they said too, I mean, I had another company. I learned a lot, you know, of my marketing chops and things that we've done, you know, you know, to get to this point where we were with advertised cast. But uh, I honestly learned a lot through, you know, podcasts. You know, I still to this day I listen to podcasts, and you know, everybody's like, "Oh, do you, you know, where'd you get your MBA from?" I'm like, 
my podcast app. Honest to God, like I listen to so many business shows, you know, to this day about marketing and, you know, growing team and this and that. And it's been a real resource for me. And after a couple of years, you, you, you're surprised how much you pick up on and you learn from, you know, people that are maybe one step ahead where, you know, we're doing $10 million revenue and I'm listening to people doing $50 million. So I'm always trying to like get to that next level by listening to people that have been there. And, and it's honest to God, you know, history does repeat itself where these people, you do listen to them. There's some real value and, you know, in, in with shortcut ways that you can't get there. And honestly, that's, that, that's what's my hack. What's your go-to pod, Trevor? Like wh- which one do you like the most that, you know, right now it's my first million, you know, but it changes, right? Like, you know, what I like today versus what I like two years ago growing the company have changed because first you're trying to get to your first million MRR, right? Well, that's not interesting anymore, right? Now you want to get to 10 and 20 and now 100, you know? So <laughs> it does change, but like Tropical MBA, yeah, you know, there's, there's so many good ones. You know, 10 Minute Entrepreneur, you know, uh, Millionaires Unveiled. And of course you have, you know, the Tim Ferriss and... Uh, the big guys like that, but there's so many good shows. Out fantastic. There. Fantastic. We'll put all those in the show notes for folks who want to link as well. Uh, tell me you bought yourselves a trophy to commemorate this. I want to hear what you both bought yourself. Dave, I <laughs> Trevor, hope you bought Trevor your can start. because <laughs> Trevor can start. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I, I bought a, a brand new C8 Corvette. <laughs> nice. And, uh, so I, I could probably find a picture, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun and, I let the family drive it around. Like even my daughters, you know, like they're they're 18 and 16. I let them drive it. People think I'm crazy, but it's just a fun car for the family. And it's you know, it's got the the tops that come off it, you know. So I never yeah. put the top on. It's like our summer yeah. car. So that's yeah, I was gonna say great yeah, for so. the Wisconsin winter. It's perfect to boot around minus 20. It's great. Yeah, Tre- <laughs> it is. Trevor's yeah. a car guy, and I like to get my horsepower in other areas. So as I mentioned, my wife and I do competitive equestrian. Um, like show jumping events. So I actually bought my wife a really nice horse for starters. Um, then the other thing I did is not so much a trophy, but um, I took my my dad and my father-in-law and a good friend of mine on a, on a golf trip to Scotland. Um, oh, wow. And that was unbelievable. So that what was a lot of fun. Yeah. Mem- memories to last a lifetime, right? I would think so. I would think so. Well, this has been a tremendous uh, treat for me, guys. This is super fun. Where can people want to reach out to you? So obviously Libsyn's the company. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where can people reach out to you? We'll start with Dave and then go to Trevor. Dave, what's the best uh, way to, for folks? Yeah, to I mean, I mean, John, I think one of the great things about your audience, like you said, is they're business people like us, entrepreneurs. And, and I'm always, you know, like you said, always be, always be closing, always be selling. Um, if anybody out there wants to advertise on podcasts or learn anything about that, you can hit me up at Dave at advertisecast.com. Happy to uh, answer any questions or, or anything like that around the whole crazy podcast advertising game. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. How about you, Trevor? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah, same thing. Uh, hit me up via email. Just uh, Trevor. It's T-R-E-V-R. Spelled differently. It's no vowel in there. It's like a startup name, right? So Trevor is at advertisecast.com. It's totally a startup name. How did you get that? <laughs> it's a startup Your parents name. are like, he's going to be an entrepreneur. We got to give him some corporate name. <laughs> <laughs> well, the real story is my, uh, my parents couldn't agree on the E or the O, and they, so they just left it out, and that's why they got divorced. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Great to meet you guys. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, John. You too, John. Thanks so much. And there you have it for today's conversation with John, Trevor, and Dave. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, you can head over to the show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure you hit that subscribe button. If you love this podcast and want to help support the show, then share this out with a friend or colleague. 
If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. If you want to get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, you can head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 